Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Love of Life podcast. And we have a special guest with us tonight. We actually have two special guests with us tonight. We have Jeff Myers Jr., who's going to talk to us a bit about investment and maybe even some cryptocurrency. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. And then we also had a baby, Courtney, I, or Courtney, I didn't. <laughs> Courtney had a baby <laughs> in the last uh, few weeks. We have our daughter. Do you want to hold her up? Do you want to show her? You're, you might hear her through this episode. So. Right. Well, people will wonder, what is that baby in the background? So this is our baby. This is Eden Noel. We almost had her in our van at 2.30 in the morning. That was fun. I, that wouldn't be my word choice, but <laughs> it was eventful. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Jeff Jr., how are you doing tonight, man? Great. How are you? <laughs> doing really well. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you guys. Great. That's awesome. So one of the things that I think would be really good to start with is for people who don't know you, maybe don't know your background. Can you talk to us about like your bona fides, your background? what you're working in, your education, things of that nature. And then we can kind of get to finance, investment, stuff like that. Yeah. So I'll just do like a really quick preview of, uh, I went to college at Hillsdale College, studied finance uh, and graduated about eight years ago. And since then, I've been working in financial services. So combination of kind of a financial advisor role, um, trading role, and um, currently I do investment research for a wealth management firm here in St. Louis. So what that means is like clients come to us with questions about all types of investments. You know, is this a good investment? My friend told me about this. Should I go this route? How should I structure my portfolio? Uh, what does it look like if I want to, you know, open an account for my children and invest for them for the long term? How should we do that? Um, so that's kind of my full-time role. And I have two different certifications right now. One's called CFP, so Certified Financial Planner. And then the second one is the FMVA, which is Financial Modeling and Valuation Analyst. Uh, and then I'm also studying for a third, which is the CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst. And these all kind of encompass different areas of financial planning and investment research and all that good stuff. That's great. That's really awesome. good. So you like finance. <laughs> yeah, you could say that I like numbers. Actually, this is you hate math, a, don't you? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a funny story. In um, in college, my finance professor, I think, thought I was a dummy because I could not use Excel for the life of me. Like I kept coming to him with the simplest of questions, and now like everything I do full time is Excel, and I teach everyone else how to use Excel <laughs> in my firm. So it's like <laughs> come full circle there. <laughs> He'd be so proud. Now. How did how did you uh, quick rabbit trail? How did you come to learn Excel? Was this YouTube videos or, I mean those so, those macros well, and cells and all that can get kind of confusing. <laughs> I know that I've been quite yeah, confused with Excel in the past. It's it's complex, but once you start using it and have to like really understand how things work, um, it's really just experience. So one of the jobs I had, the my boss, who's who, my former boss, who's also a really big mentor of mine. He used Excel for everything. And so we would use software, but then he would double check the software in Excel because mm -hmm. he just didn't trust those things. And so he kind of forced me to learn it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and then one of these certifications, the FMBA is all about modeling, financial analysis, company, business sheet, business balance sheets, income statements, cash flow statements, actually building those out in Excel. Um, part of the course and testing is being able to do that on your own. Mm -hmm. And so getting, you know, doing the reps there really helped me learn that extremely well. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Now at your current job, do you mainly talk to individuals or companies or who are the people that you help with investing? Yeah. So our, our clients are high net worth individuals, um, but we serve entire families. And so what's really interesting about um, our role is we kind of thrive in the complex world. So what we our our bread and butter clients are not like um, you know, young families who just have no children or one child, we actually thrive with families that have multiple generations and we work with all of them. Usually these families have such enormous wealth that they have a patriarch or a matriarch that kind of runs all the finances for two, three, sometimes four generations. And so we facilitate the conversations between them, um, kind of structuring their portfolios, individual entities, investing all of those 
and then providing advice kind of across the stream for that. That's that's really great. I'm a patriarch, but I haven't accrued all that mass amount of wealth yet. So maybe you can help me figure that out because I've got the patriarchy part down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would love to help you do that. <laughs> okay, good. So talk to us then about investing. Um, you know, this is this is a Christian podcast. Typically, we talk family kind of things, theology. But one of the things we actually haven't yet really discussed other than tithing um, on this podcast is investing and managing our money well and things of that nature. Sort of, if you even want to go down this road a little bit, sort of the Dave Ramsey saving, saving for a rainy day, baby steps, all that fun kind of stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. Is, is investing really the place to start or do you need to start really with what if you have debt? What if you have student loans? What if you kind of that end of the spectrum? Um, but yeah. Yeah. So this, this is why I love my job and this industry so much is because it is such a gray area, right? There, there's not, there are some instances where there are cut and dry directions to go. It's very black and white. You know what to do. There are other areas where it's very subjective. It's really up to each individual person and family, kind of how things work. Um, but so a little bit stepping back kind of into my history a little bit, um, growing up in the church, one of the things that my high school Sunday school teachers did that was really impactful to me was he took the whole class through Financial Peace University, um, which is Dave Ramsey's, you know, kind of course that he, I think, sells to both families and churches and stuff. And you kind of get trained on how to do it. And then you help people through it. Um, and we didn't do it super in depth. And of course, we were high school students. So, I mean, I was working, but I didn't really have much money to do anything with. Um, but just going through that and kind of understanding how wealth impacts families um, was just like really a really good and beneficial kind of trigger point for me to really see the value in it and the importance in it and how, you know, a lot of times we hear in the church, especially like Christians aren't, are kind of anti-wealth can be because they think, you know, building wealth is not really what we're called to do, um, that you know, we need to give away all of our money and, and, and that needs to be the first thing. And, and having wealth is almost kind of looked down upon. Um, but uh, one of the really interesting things learning from that, and then also just seeing some of the families that Jesse, you know, that are in our church that have a lot of wealth is the ability to help others and be generous with your wealth is um, it's, it's huge. I've, I've actually, I think, um, you know, the uh, Caleb preached on this last week, right? Generosity being kind of the core tenet for us as Christians and knowing like generosity from that flows, love and compassion and other things. And, and when you think about that in terms of wealth, you know, God calls us to be fruitful and to labor and to make money. Like we, we hear the parables of, of um, the, the servants that were given some and they took that and they expanded it and they made more and they generated wealth and, and they're celebrated and looked dwell upon. That's kind of the, the, the direction that I always talk about and want people to be thinking about when it comes to wealth creation, because it takes effort. You don't just, you don't just wake up one morning and you're extremely wealthy. Like it, it's like, it's like going to the gym, which is also something I'm passionate about. You don't just wake up with muscles one day, right? <laughs> you have to work at it every day. It takes, takes discipline it takes time and effort. And it's the same thing with, with money. And, and so you know, we can go all sorts of different directions with this, but um, I think it is really important that, that we kind of focus on what it takes, what it means to be focused on money in, in a positive way and not like striving after money above all things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even Proverbs is littered with lots and lots of language about diligence and diligent hands prospering and accruing wealth, not in a get rich quick kind of way, but just through working hard and being dedicated and diligent over the long haul. Um, so right. like that. Yeah. And being able to, as you're doing in your job, pass down wealth to the future generations or the succeeding generations after them down to the second or even, you know, as rare nowadays, but even a third generation to pass that wealth down, that's extremely rare, but it is possible. Right there. I don't have the exact statistic in front of me, but there's something there's a really high percentage of, you know, generational wealth that ends up being squandered and lost by that third generation. Wow. Uh, it's more than 50% that ends up being lost. And wow. so a, a big part of, you know, our role in, in the job that I do is 
just being able to educate families on that. And it's not necessarily, you know, some families want to, they don't want to spoil their children. So they don't tell them what they have, Mm -hmm. but then they end up passing away and children inherit all this money and have no idea that it was there. And were never trained in it. Were never under, they never understood the implications of it. And so they end up spending it all. Yeah. And so part of our role is educating family members around, you know, this is what it means to have money. These are your options and your opportunities. This is what you have access to. This is what we recommend. This is what your mother or father used to do with it and what they want you to do with it. Like, this is kind of the path that you can go down. And mm-hmm. you know, that's really successful when you have those conversations in, in terms of just keeping wealth, accumulating and generating and being used for good purposes. Yeah. So we broached the subject a little bit already. Investing, investing is good. Um, you know, obviously it goes without saying well, we can say it, debt overall, <laughs> hey, being in tons and tons of, say, credit card debt, sort of what Dave Ramsey talks about, not good, saving, having some money in the bank account, all those things are good. Let's get a little bit further or past that. What would you say as far as, say, a middle-class family that is just making a little bit extra every month? What would you say to a middle-class family who's, hey, they have some extra money, what should they invest in? What should they, how should, should they look at 401ks? Should they, where, where should they put their money? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of different strategies associated with that, where you can kind of dive into um, tax implications, uh, three different types of accounts on that front. There's tax deferred, tax free, and then taxable. So 401k, like you mentioned, an IRA, which is an individual retirement account. Those are two types of tax deferred accounts. What that means is that the money you contribute to it goes in pre-tax. So it reduces your uh, taxable income by a certain amount, which can be a benefit for you in terms of potentially lowering your tax bill down the road. But when you withdraw from that account in the future, uh, that is fully taxed as uh, income tax, which is a higher tax rate than maybe investment income. And so I would generally say the kind of a really good rule of thumb is if your employer offers a 401k plan, then investing in that is a great start. Um, usually your employer will match up to a certain percentage. 3% is kind of the standard. Some good companies will match up to 6%. And really that's, that's in, a, in essence free money for you to be able to put away for your future and your family's future. Um, so that's usually the, a good first step. Um, there are tax implications with investing in a 401k and an IRA if you're employed. So usually the only route you can go is a 401k. Um, but the next type of account, tax-free account, that's going to be your Roth IRA. So that just means that this money goes in after tax. So you've already received your, your paycheck, it's in your bank account, and then you contribute to a Roth IRA. There's no tax benefit up front, but down the road, when you need to withdraw from that account, it's tax-free money. So the growth is tax-free, the amount you've contributed is tax-free. There are limitations around when you can actually withdraw at a certain age and a certain time period for that account being open. Um, and then of course, because it's tax-free, the government limits your ability to contribute to that. So you have a much smaller amount that you can contribute each year. So that account might sound perfect and amazing, but they really restrict that. So you can't do too much there. Mm. Um, And that third type of account is taxable account, which means money is in in your savings account, your checking account, you invest it into a brokerage account. Um, This is usually like an individual or joint account or maybe account in the name of your trust. Um, You're not taxed on contributing that. What, when you are taxed is when you sell assets in that account. Let's say you invest $100, it turns into $150, you sell it, that $50 gain is going to be taxed. And depending on when you sell it, it'll be taxed based on ordinary income rates or capital gains rates, which are more favorable, they're smaller rates. Um, so there's different strategies with each of those. But kind of the, the waterfall effect in the way that we always talk about it is 401k first, get that uh, employer match then your Roth IRA up to the full amount, which each year I think is $6,500 right now uh, for individuals. And then anything extra goes into your taxable account. And so when, when we look at clients that have really extreme wealth and a lot of money, it's not gonna be in those tax deferred accounts or tax-free accounts because they're limited. It's all gonna be in those after-tax accounts that they've set up. Mm-hmm. And that's where you can kind of go, usually you're, you're going to have more investment options. You're going to be able to get way deeper into the weeds and complex nature of investing on that front. Um, but you just have to deal with the tax con- consequences on that end as well. 
Awesome. Um, do you have any tips just as far as overall um, being a good steward of your finances? Because that's kind of, I think, some of what we're talking about, just managing yeah. running well. Do you have favorite strategies or tips? <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, I don't want to give specific tips, right? Because it's not, it's not trying to give financial advice on that front. Um, but I think what goes in is kind of, it, so being a good steward of your wealth goes back to what Jesse said earlier, right? It's when you have enough that you can cover your bills, you have a savings account, and then you still have a little bit extra afterwards. And when putting that money aside for the long term, you, you commit to, I'm not going to touch this money because I don't need it. This needs to be saved and compounded for future generations, or even for just if, if your goal is just to retire comfortably. So it, it should really be you focus on the, comp the money you need right now for supporting your family, tithing to the church, that type of thing. The next bucket is investing or is saving into your emergency fund. So being able to cover usually the, the range is six to nine months of expenses. Just in the event someone loses a job, you can maintain your lifestyle or cut back a little bit without being in a terrible position. And then beyond that, investing what you have. And so that helps you to get the right mindset of this is excess money. So I don't need to use it for wants. I want to use it for future needs. Mm -hmm. And so that just that mindset shift can be really powerful because it helps us to focus on not necessarily delayed gratification, but avoiding instant gratification, right? Just because you have money doesn't mean you should go out and buy new shoes and new t-shirts and new clothes and all that silly stuff that you probably don't need right now. Yeah. Um, and so being able to shift that mindset of this money is ours, but we're going to save it for later. And then using the power of compounding to help that build over time um, really helps to kind of create wealth on that front. I mean, my, my approach and kind of the, the strategy that I use, which I think is the simplest, um, you know, we talk to our clients about being disciplined, having a strategic plan, which means you are, you create an allocation, your investment allocation which means you're going to invest in certain asset classes and in certain funds that you're going to be comfortable with ideally forever. So whether the market's up, whether it's down, you know that this is my strategic plan and I'm just going to keep implementing it. And so if you get to a period of euphoria where the market's up big time and everyone's really excited about every single thing, nothing can lose, you maintain the mindset of this is my stated goal. This is my strategic plan. It may not be as flashy as crypto or something else that's going really high right now, but I know that it's going to do the job so that on the downside, when everything's down, like it is today, the world is really concerned and markets are really just showing a lot of fear. You can say, this is my strategic plan. I've planned for this. It's down a little bit, but you know, I know that over the long run, this is what's going to help me achieve my family's goals. And so on that front, you know, I, I, I read this stuff all day and I kind of, I just, I'm super geeked out about it, but the best strategy that I've ever heard is just a simple one is just keep buying. And so what that means is you employ kind of a strategy of we're going to invest a little bit every month or every quarter or every year, no matter what, if the market's up, if the market's down, if the thing I like is up, if it's down, if people are afraid, if they're excited, no matter what, you just keep buying. And actually history and stats have proven that that, that, that um, strategy ends up performing better than, you know, buying all at once or buying at specific times that you think might be best. That is the strategy that ends up winning out because the power of compounding and you're putting money to work up or down markets you're, and you're leaving it aside for the long run. That's how you end up creating that generational wealth. Mm-hmm. And in this, are we just primarily talking about those 401ks that we're investing in? Or are there other things that you're like, mm, this part of it, it, are there various sectors of the market that you think right now are worthy of starting to invest in and continue to, even in a downturned economy like we have right now, it's yeah. to be putting money towards? So I would say, stepping back broadly, you should ideally, if you're you know, financially able, you should always be investing, right? That's kind of the theme there. The 401k, the, uh, the only concern with the 401k is each 401k provider is only allowed to list a certain number of fund options. So um, that means that you give 
uh, employees enough options to invest in something that would be either informationally known to them or interesting to them, but you're not providing every option under the sun. Imagine if you logged into your 401k provider and they had 10,000 options for you to choose from. You'd never know what to choose from. Instead, they limit it to 30. And then if you don't choose anything, they will choose an automatic one for you. That is just going to be kind of a targeted retirement plan uh, based on your estimated retirement age. So that's good and it works. But there are also going to be situations in the future where you might need to use your wealth for something, whether that's a home purchase or, um, you know, a, a contribution to the church if you wanted to give a large gift one year. And so using those, that third type of account, the taxable account that we talked about, that's going to give you the most flexibility, A, from the usage perspective. Um, you can borrow against that account in the future if you needed to. Uh, you can also, um, you can gift stocks and funds to charitable organizations like the church. That will be a tax deductible gift for you and also provide benefit to the church. Um, and then the second, the, the B part of that is you have every available option under the sun to invest in. And so that gives a little bit more flexibility. That's going to allow you, instead of buying an S&P 500 index fund, you're going to be allowed to buy an underlying company. If you wanted to buy Apple or Facebook or I guess Meta um, or any of those other ones, you're going to have that ability. Mm -hmm. And so in that scenario, my preference is going to be a taxable account. And then in our current market environment, um, and this ties into kind of my style of investing, which is um, what's broadly called value investing, which means you are buying companies that, and we always say companies, not stocks, because we want to be, we want to change our mindset to be business owners instead of stock market or stock pickers, because stock pickers are in and out, in and out, in and out, right? They're short-term focused, but business owners are going to be long-term focused. And that's kind of how we should approach these investments. And so from that perspective, we value investors look for companies that are earning a profit. They're not taking on too much debt in the company. They're well run by a good management team. Management team is, is um, both incentivized to manage the company well and, has a, and is paid well to do that, right? So you want to make sure incentives are aligned with the company. And what that does is it provides good companies um, opportunity for you to invest in them in markets like this. Because the market as a whole, I think right now, year to date is down about 25%. But some of these better, more well-run companies that maybe aren't as flashy as the Meta or the Apples or the Googles, they are going to be down potentially less than this because they have good profitability. They're still making money in these times. They don't have a lot of debt that they have to worry about rising interest rates impacting their ability to pay on those debts. And so there's, there's a lot of opportunity on that if you select the right company um, and being able to hold on to them for the long term, that those are, those, those are always in up or down markets going to be your, your ideal selection. And that's my opinion, because I, I'm not really the, the growth, the flashy, the momentum tracker that like you, we saw a lot of, you know, 2020, 2021, all these flashy names, you know, Zoom came out public and it went straight up and then it went straight down. Uh -huh. DocuSign, all these tech companies that they went public on, on all this hype, but when push came to shove, they didn't have the profit margins that everyone thought they would. And they had to scale back their forward-looking estimates and they had to change their business practices when COVID ended that like that changed the whole dynamic of the company. And then investors were like, this isn't why I bought this. And they sell and the stock plummets. And so we see a lot of that lately. And so looking at good businesses that are long-term compounders, they're generating a, a solid profit, they have a strategic business plan in place that's implemented over a long period of time. Those are the types of investments that you look for, especially in this type of market. Mm -hmm. That's good. Say someone is not as young as the three of us here, uh, and they're not <laughs> as springly, and they're a little bit over the, you know, the mountain the sun is setting, but they're still, you know, it's say they're, I, I'm not trying to put an age on this here. Um, <laughs> I got to now. Um, so say someone is like 50, 55, even 60 years old. Okay. And yeah. they're looking at life going, okay. They don't really have the time for a lot of compound interest. 
what would you, if you were advising, generically speaking, if someone's listening going, man, I'm 56, 57 years old, I'm not super, I'm not super old, but I'm not 20 now investing. What would you tell somebody at that age to do to invest or what would be their best case scenario? Yeah. So I'm going to challenge you a little bit because, you know, if you're 65, are you planning to die at 70? No, right. You're planning to live as long as possible and and not in the sense of like prolonging your life, but you're healthy you're capable of living longer, you take care of yourself, you're going to need your, your nest egg, your retirement account to support you for up to 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. So there is still that compounding effect that's going to take into action there. But um, we've been talking mainly about investing in equities, companies, stocks, right? Um, The other option that we didn't talk about was was fixed income. Mm -hmm. And fixed income is the debt of companies, um, which you can which can be of companies or of the government, right? So the government issues bonds and bonds are different from equities because what happens in a bond is you uh, enter into a contract with a company or the government and you pay $100 to them and they commit to paying you 2% per year for 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, they're gonna pay you back that $100. So these are considered safer investments. They're under a contractual obligation to return your money to you, but they're going to earn less in terms of a return compared to equities. And so generally, fixed income is going to be a more of a safe haven asset. It's going to provide some sort of income uh, and then that return of capital over the long run, which can be a good option for older generations um, because it will you know, provide coupons that they can clip as income. Uh, now, the downside of that, though, is we're in a very unusual market actually going back 50 years, bonds have not been down as much as they are this year. They're down about 14 and a half percent. They've never been down this much. The worst they ever got was down close to 10%, um, I think in the Mm eighties. And so the reason for that is because the federal reserve has been raising rates so quickly this year to combat inflation that interest rates have gone straight up so quickly and bonds have reacted um, the way that bonds work is when the yield goes up, the price goes down. When the price goes up, the yield goes down. And so right now the yield, those interest rates are going straight up really quickly and the price of these bonds are plummeting. Now that's providing opportunity for investors, especially long-run bond invest, long-term bond investors. You know, you buy into it now, you're gonna have a higher coupon. Um, it's gonna still be that contracted amount for whatever period of time. And it ranges, of course, you can got you can buy you know one month paper all the way out to thirty year government bonds. So there's a, a wide range of, of options there. But the key is that um, this is also kind of a scary environment for fixed for fixed income investors, especially that older generation that has relied on these in the past. And we're coming off of a period of really low interest rates for about a decade now since the Great Financial Crisis in 08 interest rates have been really low. So bonds have been kind of producing almost nothing for a really long time. Now they're starting to produce something, but we've experienced this downturn with the price. And so we're entering into a period where fixed income is going to be more appealing, but it's going to be, uh, it's tough getting there right now. And so generally what we say in in environments um, for, for, for older clients like this is you take a combination of equities and fixed income in your portfolio so that in periods when equities are down, usually your fixed income is down a little bit less and it can be a ballast to your portfolio, keep you from being down quite as far as equities, but still kind of providing some a little bit of return over the long run. Right now, both of them being down so hard, this is something we've never experienced before. And so it makes for a very fearful market. Mm-hmm. Um, and that often is a period when you know investors really should be putting money to work because prices are really low, opportunity is out there. Uh, It's not going to be quite as exciting as flashy as maybe it was last year, Mm -hmm. but being able to stay disciplined, stick to that strategic plan, keep buying, that's where people are going to be able to make that long-term wealth creation. Mm. That's good. So if somebody's listening and they're thinking, okay, yeah, all this sounds good. It's a lot of information. I want to learn more. Do you have like resources or things you would point people to if they're getting their feet wet and investing and 
they just need some more things to, to solidify some of the steps they need to take? Or would you say meeting with an advisor is something they should do? What's yeah. Your recommendation there? I think so. This is one of the reasons why I am so passionate about this industry is because so much of it uh, feels dirty. Um, because so often, you know, advisors will go on podcasts like this or CNN or CBS or whatever, and they will tout that they have the answers and they're the only ones with the answers. Mm. And that's the kind of stuff that I, I really try to fight against. Um, and I don't, I don't want to support that. I've seen advisors in the past that kind of use different angles to bring clients in, misleading them potentially, and that just ends up being really bad. And so kind of my goal and perspective of being in this industry is to provide honest information and then also just to make people aware like no one has all the answers, right? And so there's different ways that you can get into this and different areas that you can learn more. Um, but there are good financial advisors out there. They're just, they're often hard to find. Um, so I, I think advi I think financial advisors are really important for people who start to have complex situations. So if you have trusts or complex estate planning scenarios, um, you have, maybe you want to open a bunch of different accounts and you want to pursue some sort of complex strategic plan, financial advisors are going to be good. But for most people, it's, it's on the, the opinion that you don't really need a financial advisor. If you can kind of set up some rules-based situations to prepare yourself, that's what you need to do. And actually so much of the industry is kind of fighting against that because of this, you know, kind of run-up we've seen in the market in the past, the craze that we've seen from, oh, you know, the memes, stocks only go up. Um, that's kind of how it was 2020, 2021. And that has led to kind of the gamification of investing. And so people are buying in and out of things and, and um, apps like Robinhood are kind of misleading investors. And that's really challenging to be um, around that. And again, just another kind of call to action for, for more honest people. And um, it's hard to point to one specific place um, for informational purposes, you know, learning more. There's so many resources out there. So, um, I mean, I think Investopedia is a great kind of just definitional kind of place to learn about investing and to ask questions and get answers to it that are in layman's terms, basic. Um, I think there are a couple brokerage houses that do a good job of providing information like Charles Schwab or Fidelity. You can find all kinds of really good information on there and research that they provide and helpful direction. Um, I mean, I can, I can tell you kind of the geeky nuanced places that I go or the stuff that I write and post on these areas. But I don't know that necessarily is beneficial to everyone. <laughs> no, feel free. Yeah. <laughs> feel free. Helpful, so. Hey, can you, can, you, can you stick with us a little bit longer? I'm going to send you another link real quick. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, hold on one moment. <laughs> Goofball. Hold on, hold on. All right, now we're good. Okay. Okay, so there's some various resources, some things that you, I, well, you know, you write on this subject. It, can people go to your blog and, and read some of the stuff that you're, coming up with and that you're writing about? Yeah. So I don't have, um, I started a personal blog where I wrote about some things and didn't really get off the ground, but what I ended up transitioning to was writing for a paid newsletter. Okay. Um, and so this newsletter is called short squeeze and they do a daily free newsletter that kind of just provides market updates. So you can kind of see what's moving in the markets. Um, what kind of happened yesterday why, why certain things are returning certain directions. Um, it also provides resources for like books that are good for investors and business owners to read. Um, has a little crypto corner where it talks a little about what's, about what's happening in the markets. And then it also provides an awesome uh, finance meme at the bottom. Um, but so then I write for their weekly premium version, um, which is a paid newsletter where I dive into individual stocks and companies um, and kind of ask the question, you know, is this a good investment? You know, this is what Wall Street says. Do we agree with that? Do we not agree with that? And really, like, it's just me nerding out about diving into company financial statements and proxy statements and kind of understanding, does this company run well? Do they have a good strategic plan? Are their managers incentives the right way? Um, and then, you know, Wall Street says, let's invest in this. It's great. But, you know, kind of what people don't realize is that Wall Street says that about almost every single company. 
<laughs> so you kind of have to be like, okay, obviously they're going to be positive on it, but is it actually worthwhile to invest in? And so that's where I do the majority of my writing outside of uh, my daytime job anyways. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Now you had a good question for people who might not know where to get started at all or where to even get going with this, but go ahead. You ask it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the question. So if you have your, your 401k going, you have a Roth IRA, you're ready to go to that third bucket. Like where, how do you do that? Where do you get started? Do you talk to somebody at your bank? Do you do it from your couch? What does this look like? Yeah. So the, the, this goes back to kind of what we talked about earlier is being really cautious. Um, everyone in this industry is selling something. Mm-hmm. And most of the time from like your big shops, big banks, even your local banks, they kind of have a range of products that they are told, this is what you're supposed to talk about. This is what you need to sell. Um, I think there are two really good directions you can go. One, you can open an account with Schwab, which Schwab has the lowest trading fees, which are zero. Um, and they have access to just about everything under the sun. And they have a really quick setup process and a really great support system. So if you need to call someone and ask a question, they have people in call centers that actually provide great advice and are very helpful. So I would put that for people who know a little bit about what they're doing or kind of have enough direction. And enough direction can be as simple as going out and buying the Vanguard S&P 500 index fund, which is one of the cheapest funds out there. It's just going to track the S&P 500 index, which is a good proxy for the broader market. If you're going to go that route, really simple, you're going to save, there's going to be no transaction fees, you're going to pay very little fund management fees, um, and that's going to be a really safe and good kind of long-term strategy. The other option is um, using some of these robo-advisors. So these are online, um, online investment managers that were set up to provide really basic investment advice to the broader market. And so these are going to be companies like Wealthfront. Um, Schwab also has this offering. Um, there's another one. I can't remember the name of it right now, but it'll come to me in a minute. But essentially what these, um, what these companies do is they streamline the account opening process for you. You can do it from your phone. Very, very simple. And then they have basically um, three to six model portfolios. And those model portfolios will be selected based on your risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. So how comfortable you are when the market's down, how comfortable you are when the market's up, how much excess money you have available to invest. And they'll say, oh, you know, for someone like me, I'm really comfortable when the market's down. I have excess money to invest and I want to be aggressive. So I would probably get put into a model portfolio that's 100% stocks, as opposed to a more conservative investor would maybe be put into a portfolio that's 40% stocks and 60% bonds. There's going to be, it's going to have less upside potential, but it's going to diminish the downside potential as well. So what happens is you set up this account essentially to do that auto investing. It will draw from your bank account on a regular basis, whether that's once a month, once a quarter, once a year, it'll automatically invest into that portfolio. And what that portfolio is buying is going to be index funds. So incredibly low cost funds, that are just getting you access to everything in the market. So that's going to be domestic, U.S.-based companies, international companies, and then also bonds. Um, and those can be also domestic, international, and government entities. That, that approach is going to be the best for the majority of people because what it's going to do is it's going to remove that emotional process from you of buying uh, and allow you to automate it. So you know I can, I can set aside $150 a month to invest. I'm going to set it up so that it auto buys on the 15th every month. And then you can kind of set it and forget it. And you can check it whenever you want. You can log in from your phone, from your computer, you'll get statements every month, but they kind of take care of that heavy lifting for you. And then they'll also provide research resources. They generally will provide some sort of newsletter if you want to be kept up to date on what's happening in the market. And then often they'll all, it might cost extra sometimes, but they'll provide access to an actual human person that you can call and ask, you know, decent questions. And those people are not going to be chart um, making money off commissions. So they won't be selling you a product that they'll get paid for. They'll get kind of an hourly salary type of role, which means they're there to support you. They're going to get paid no matter what. So they're going to give you good, honest advice. 
That's good. Yeah, it's really helpful. Yeah. Do you have any follow-up to that? Any further thoughts? Um, just you said again that first before you would get to that, you would do you'd contribute as much as you can to your 401k, you'd max out your Roth IRA, you'd take care of those um sufficiently first. Yeah, and actually we can we can take a step back because you know Jesse kind of glossed over this. But um, we can go down the Dave Ramsey hole a little bit first. And that's, you know, if you have credit card debt, consumer debt, taking care of that first is probably going to be the best thing for your ability to um, compound wealth over the long term. Now, one of the things that I disagree on with Dave Ramsey is he says all debt is bad debt, right? I think that has a time and a place and for certain people who are unable to control themselves if they have access to more money, then yes, all debt is bad debt. But for most of us who are capable of, you know, having some sense of control, credit card debt is bad debt. You can use that debt to support yourself. If you're disciplined enough to pay it off every single month, you can use that to get points, you know, some sort of rewards program that can help you in the future. Um, But debt like auto loans and home loans, those are useful tools that allow you to accumulate assets. And that's the key here. So the difference between commercial um, debt and then this type of debt is these are asset-backed loans, right? So your car is an asset to you. Now, depending on how much you pay for it, hopefully you're not overpaying for it. Uh Um, and, And a good rule of thumb is to put something down. You know, ideally you're putting 20 to 30% 30% down on your car loan um, so that it's not entirely financed. Um, but there are scenarios where you don't have that ability and you have to. But as you pay that off, your loan disappears in five, six, seven years now. But that car is still an asset to you and your family. And it still has value, both personal value to you and also monetary value that you can sell in the future. Mm-hmm. Same thing with your house. Not all of us are going to be able to save. to buy a house. And if you do, it might take you 10 or 15 years. And that's not always viable for families, especially when you have half a dozen children (laughs) to live, (laughs) to live in a, um, to live in an apartment for a long period of time or to rent a long period of time. It makes more sense for your family to, to buy a house Mm -hmm. and, you know, going into, to debt, Mm -hmm. to buy a house is is not the same thing as going into debt because you've spent a hundred thousand dollars on four different credit cards to buy, you know, a bunch of different junk that you don't need. Sure, so that, sure. that's where I end up being in disagreement with him because you can use those to your advantage and you can be smart and be stewards of your money by putting an appropriate amount down, being able to afford the monthly mortgage payment or car payment and still having extra money to set aside and tithe and save. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like I can get that Tesla now. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jeff Jr. It's wonderful having you on the Lama Life Podcast. Good night. Um, No comment. So now you, (laughs) you're a wise man. So basically, you really think that an auto loan is fine. I mean, Dave like preaches hardcore against that. You're stupid if you don't buy buy a a car with cash. Better to drive a clunker than your cool BMW, you know, or something (laughs) like you know. he, He says, don't take it out for an auto loan. Now his, now the mortgage thing, I mean, he, as you know, he even wants you to buy a home with cash, which, you know, maybe by the time, at least with the prices that are now, if you want to buy something decent, maybe when you're 50, 45, yeah, you know, and right. you saved literally every dime, uh, you right. know, for a lot of people, at least that's how it would work. That's how it would work. But um, oh, that's, that, that's, that's interesting that for you, you look, even though the car is depreciating in value all the time, um, I know, well, just subjectively. So we bought a, a Jeep years, years ago, it took a loan out, paid the loan off. It took a few years and then we saved money and we made, started making a lot more. We started making more money. And then for my next vehicle, I said, I'm not taking out an auto loan anymore. I'm not mm-hmm. doing that. And I bought my van used van, not brand new or anything, but I bought my used van with cash. And I felt like this was a much wiser way of buying a vehicle but for you it's kind of out it's kind of you know whatever you want to do regarding auto loans no so again this is where you know the beauty of this is all it's subjective and it's a very gray area so 
there's the kind of the rule of thumb when um from my perspective when i remembered the dave ramsey podcast i listened to which katie and i listened to it for like three years straight when we first got married we were obsessed um, it's fun listening to him yell at people for taking out three hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of undergraduate <laughs> student loans yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> it's but i think the the rule of thumb that i have found that's helpful is when when you know you hear on his podcast you know this person this couple makes sixty thousand dollars a year and the guy bought an eighty thousand dollar truck right or a fifty thousand dollar truck or even a thirty thousand dollar truck like the the key is like be reasonable with that right so you're not overextending yourself by getting this auto loan you're putting down an appropriate amount you're buying a reasonable car you don't okay. need to go out and buy a brand new tesla oh, man. <laughs> especially financing the whole thing right As, unless unless you're someone that makes a million dollars a year yeah. right and and a hundred thousand dollar car isn't going to impact you over the long term that's a different story right so every person's going to be different now, there's a lot of value in being able to buy a car um, with, with cash, right? Because what it does is it forces you to really look closely at the car, really understand what you're buying. You're going to make sure you get a good deal on it because you're putting all of your money, theoretically, all of your savings into this car, and you're walking away without a payment, which is amazing, but you have to reaccumulate your savings. Now, if we want to get really nuanced, over the period of the last decade I mentioned with really low interest rates, you could buy a car and finance it potentially for 0% interest. Mm. And if you think about that, you're borrowing over the course of five years, the value of that car and not paying any interest on it. Mm. Now there is some kind of, we could call it tactical moves you could make on that front. And right now you can even get more nuances, even as interest rates are rising. If you're borrowing money, let's say at four, five, 6%, inflation is 9%, you're still effectively getting a discount on that funding money by borrowing it instead of giving up your cash, because your cash is losing 9% a year. But if you take someone else's cash and you only put a little bit cash up front, you're able to kind of be a little bit more tactical on that front that can save you money down the long run. And that's why I say to people right now who are saying, well, the market's rocky, you know, maybe we should pay off our our car loans and, and kind of make sure we don't have any debt. Well, look at, look at your interest rate. We have, I have a car loan that has a 3% interest rate. I, I'm not going to pay that off because I'm wasting 6% right there by giving up all my cash just to pay down that car loan. Interest mm. inflation's at 9%. My interest rate's at 3%. I'm giving up that differential right now. I could go and invest that excess money and make up more than the difference there. Ideally, right? Once we get past kind of the market turmoil, but that's kind of, um, you can get more nuanced into it. And one of the things that whenever I talk to people about Dave Ramsey, he is great for getting people to zero. So many people come in the negative, right? They're starting with less than zero. Yeah. He's amazing at getting them to zero. Once you get to zero, the world looks a lot different, zero to a hundred, zero to one even than it does below zero. Yeah. And so that's where it just becomes more nuanced. And so if he were to change his story for those who reached zero, it would be a lot harder to kind of market that as broadly as he does. But if he mm -hmm. keeps the same line across the board, not saying there's, that there's anything wrong with that. It's just much easier story to be able to tell up, up above zero and down below zero. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, I just wanted you to expound on that because I'm <laughs> sure there's a few Dave Ramsey purists out there that were ready to pick up their stones and uh, hurl them at you. Not me, but you know, I'm sure yeah, there's some not, Dave no, Ramsey not. people out there that are going, wait a minute, he told me I could go get an auto loan and Dave told me no. And scream at me if I get on his show. No, that was Look, helpful though. No, that was helpful. With, that was good. I like the nuance and, that, yeah. and the inflation. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, I mean, that, I think this is why it also ties so closely to, to exercise, right? So much of America is in debt. So much of America is overweight and sickly making steps in the right direction, even to get to a baseline is going to be the most impactful for the most people. Yep. And so what Dave Ramsey does on that front is phenomenal and super beneficial. But for the people that need to go a little bit farther, for those of us that should go farther, mm -hmm. there's a line where he's helpful up to that point, And then you kind of have to move past it. And that, uh, that's, that's frankly my story, right? I utilized his steps to get out of debt. 
And then to be able to go afterwards, I was like, you know what? I think I, I don't think this is right for step zero to one, you know? So who did you turn to or where did you turn when you got there? <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's kind of my experience, right? That just the roles that I've had and, and the training that I've gotten, the certifications that I've gone after, that's how I've kind of just compiled all of this information to be able to come up with my opinions and, and my kind of process. Um, if you really want to nerd out really early on in my career, I read um, the book, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham, came out in like the 1930s. And it, uh, Benjamin Graham is Warren Buffett's mentor. Oh, and okay. Benjamin Graham was the Warren Buffett of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And it's because he took this approach of investing in companies for the long term as with the, bit, with the hat on of being a business owner instead of pursuing stock market returns, quick money, that type of thing. The book is dense. Um, I have a colleague that's a CPA that tried to read it and said it was too dense for him. Um, but for those of you that are interested in, and want to geek out, Intelligent Investor is a phenomenal resource. It's been, it's been in print for almost 100 years now. Sweet. That's awesome. That's great. That's good. Okay. Um, crypto. crypto. Do you want to touch on crypto? <laughs> I know you and I have gone back and forth oh, about yeah. crypto. And I know we have, uh, I don't want to say vastly different, but we have some different perspectives. <laughs> I yeah. view it just real quick because I'm going to let you talk, but I view it as uh, faker than our fiat currency in many ways, personally. But I'm, I know there are people like you who say no on, on the contrary, and uh, here's why. So tell us why cryptocurrency is the next best thing since uh, whiskey and rye. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I mean, look, I would agree with you that our fiat currency is pretty fake ever since the dollar was depegged from gold and right. became a floating currency like all currencies are now you you can see this pretty clearly things can almost be made up right it's very easily influenced my bank account says i have x amount of dollars in my bank account but i do i actually i don't know i've never seen that physical money unless i go to the atm and pull out some cash right, right. so um that now the the key so the key with crypto that i am super positive about and let me take one step back really quick obviously crypto is doing worse than equities and, and bonds this year and you know we went through this period of crypto euphoria from 2018 through 2021 and now we're kind of in this deep depression again where everyone hates it and thinks it's a joke and um silly things that have spun off from crypto like nfts, NFTs getting, right <laughs> yeah, they're getting investigated by the sec so there's a lot of questions around some of this stuff that's the nature of innovation right some of the some of the stuff during periods of euphoria is going to get picked up and shelled and and you're going to be told that this snake oil is pure you know whatever face lotion you want it to be <laughs> but it's actually poison um that stuff's going to happen and and the market kind of has to work itself through these processes. I think the key with cryptocurrency that, that makes me so interested and positive on it is this fact that um, it's decentralized, right? So you're not reliant on US Bank or JP Morgan or the US federal government telling you what your money is worth. It's determined by the free market. And there's no one person that has control over this. Actually, there's an amazing book um, I think it's called the spider network. Um, it's about a trader um, who worked for one of these big banks, Citigroup, Credit Suisse, JP Morgan, one of those, but his main job was trading LIBOR, which is the London interbank uh, overnight rate. So that's kind of the, really the bottom line base interest rate that banks will use for all sorts of borrowing. And his job was to set it every single day. And he was manipulating it every single day for 30 years moving it a little bit this direction, a little bit that direction based on what buddies were telling him, what he was being told to do, what he wanted to do, that type of thing. And so when you think about how much of Wall Street in general is centralized, how much of um, our currency, the US dollar, all of these currencies um, are centralized under one authority or one sovereign government, there's a lot of concern about what that looks like in the future in terms of freedom. And so having an asset class, a currency that's set by the free market, not controlled by one person, 
there's there's a lot of interesting applications for that. Um, and we've seen some really unique um, technology that's come out of it. I mean, if, if we, you know, kind of step back from Bitcoin, which people call the digital gold, and look at some of these second and third order um, effects that we've seen from cryptocurrency like Ethereum, which is called um, the world computer is kind of its nickname. And essentially what it is, is it's smart contracts. So they've created technology that can execute contracts without the need of a middleman. Now we're going to destroy industries with this because some people's entire job and function is to be a middleman. But if you, let's, I mean, think the application of this is, is so phenomenal. So think about um, you have a, an insurance contract and um, instead of having to call someone, you know, there is um, technology in place that you're affected by Hurricane Ian, your house is demolished. You had, I don't know, monitors, sensors in your house that then get demolished. What that information goes to the blockchain, your contract is immediately executed and funds are sent to you to replace your house because it was insured for this type of catastrophe. There are applications like that. There are some that they're even so silly as like um, you can get, it's almost like um, air travel insurance where you have this contract in place and your flight gets canceled that notice of cancellation goes to the, the blockchain and you immediately get refunded for your flight. And it's not like dealing with the calling Delta and saying, my flight was canceled, I need to be refunded. And they're like, here's a hotel voucher, buy. And you're like, no, 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 no. I need my money back. Like just the applications on that front are, are really interesting and unique and, and innovative. And so the, what we're going to see is as this continues to progress, and evolve, there's a lot of really, really interesting applications that just go beyond the scope of currency. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's why I'm excited about it. <laughs> and do you ever see perhaps a chance that government could, even though it's not centralized, could government still step in and say, well, now we're going to centralize this. Now we're going to, yeah. now that it's out there it. in the ranks of people, people are really using it. Let's say we get to that point where it's used even more than it is today. And I, I know it's taken off. I know a lot of people use it. But what, what happens if, can these governments eventually go, we, we're going to take control of it now? Because that's, isn't that what they do? I mean, they- Yeah, oh, absolutely. That's take what over they do. just about everything, or they yeah. try to. Yeah, well, so that's the thing is they're, they're already doing that. Right. So governments are creating um, digital currency called CBDCs, which kind of sounds like CBD, um, <laughs> but it's central bank digital currencies. And so uh, China's already implemented this. Um, the U.S. is exploring implementing this. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of fear around these because on first glance, you say, oh, this is you know, just a way to revolutionize the dollar or something or to bring the dollar into the 21st century. This will be great. The, the technological impact will be perfect. But then when you actually look underneath, you get into scenarios where um, the government has the ability to pull all of the money out of your bank account because of your posts on Facebook right. or because of something you said to someone in the hallway or some thought that you have maybe in the future, right? We go full some 1984 here. that you were on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? So, so, so governments are already doing this. Yep. Um, and, and I think that that's, so, but that's the key, right? They have to create new currencies to do this. They don't, they don't have the ability to do this for um, not, not all, but for most, they can't do this for most cryptocurrencies because of that decentralized aspect mm -hmm. for the major ones like Bitcoin and Ethereum, there is no single majority owner. Now we've seen this in some other scenarios where um, other cryptocurrencies that are less prominent right now, they do have majority holders. And um, they can be easily influenced. So that, that's where it's, it's possible on that front where, um, you know, a government entity might come in and buy up all of the currency in order to have the majority voting share to then influence the rest of it. But it would require widespread adoption of that currency, which once we see widespread adoption, which we've seen for these other two, being able to take control of it is, is really, really difficult. So that's kind of the hope and it's, it's not foolproof. You're right. There's definitely concerns that that's, that that could happen, but there is um, hope that the free market will regulate itself on that front and the decentralized nature will help um, avoid 
being overtaken by a government entity, essentially, and controlled by them. Okay, well, we can only hope so. This is as radical as I've ever gotten on a podcast. This is as radical <laughs> as you've gotten? Oh, man. We should bring the producer of our show on, on here sometime. Addison. Oh, yeah. That would be fun. Those two would have a great talk. <laughs> um, okay, great. Well, anything you want to follow up with? Anything you would like to end? Um, any kind of clarification or further thought or anything else that perhaps we didn't cover? If not, we'll just have to have you back on again. Yeah, not that I can think of. I mean, obviously, I love talking about this and, yeah. and i get really uh really into the weeds really quickly so hopefully everything made sense but um well i love talking about it so that's great yeah lots of good stuff thanks for sharing <laughs> yeah thanks, thanks for, coming for having on, jeff i appreciate it absolutely thank you very much thank you for listening to the love of life podcast conversations with jesse and courtney it is our duty through our schools to create a new one, a God-centered one. We are told in Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36, For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. <laughs>